This morning's passage is found in Romans 1, verses 16 to 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This morning, we return to Romans. Uh, we are back here in Romans. We began our journey through Romans at the beginning of this year. We spent 11 weeks in the first half of the book of Romans. Now, we now return for a four-week mini-series here in August through the remaining half of Romans 1. That means we have a lot to cover, comparatively speaking, in only four weeks. And then we'll take a break again, and I'm so excited to announce the next sermon series with you that'll begin in September. Not quite yet, though. Um, But we are going to continue then in the spring, picking up in chapter two in Romans. And so we're sort of breaking up this series over time. Now, I am going to this morning uh, turn to our passage, and I want to share with you uh, an extended introduction to this little mini-series in August in the second half of Romans that I hope is going to orient us to this mini-series. But more importantly, uh, up front, I hope that this extended introduction orients us to the audience and aim of this particular portion of Scripture. So as I'm giving this introduction, if your mind begins to wander, all of us in the room, I hope that what you'll do is you'll just look, look down at your Bible and say, is what he's talking about like relevant to what is here in front of me? Here's what I would like to share with you. We, we live today in this odd space between Jew and Gentile. Uh, the second half of Romans 1 is in reference to those whom the Lord has not revealed his word. Who is the first half of Roman, the second half of Romans 2? It's to those to whom he has not revealed his word. He's not spoken to him, them as their Lord. He's not revealed his face to them. What do we call those people? We call those people Gentiles. And yet, these Gentiles have no excuse for their godliness. Godlessness, the passage says. They know God. Even the Gentiles to whom God has not revealed himself by his word, they know him. They have seen his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse, even those who have never heard from the Lord or seen, even those who have never heard from the Lord have seen his glory. 
we just spent time, two weeks, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare and the skies proclaim the glory of God. These are the Gentiles. Now, there are also the Jews, and we're going to come to the Jews in chapter 2. From Abraham, to whom the Lord revealed the glory of his divine nature and spoke his covenant to Moses, to whom God spoke his own name and through whom God revealed his law, this people, the Jewish people, know God in a way that the Gentiles did not know God. The Gentiles have the skies proclamation. The the Jews have the actual word of God and his presence among them. They know his promise, they know his name, and they know his righteousness according to the law. And so where do you and I fit in all of this? Are we Jews or are we Gentiles about whom this passage is talking? Well, first of all, I'm not sure. I would have to meet each one of you personally, individually, but I'm going to go with the presumption that most in this room are not Jews. Most are Gentiles by birth according to to the flesh. That is, most in this room are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to the flesh. And so you would think, well, that makes us Gentiles, right? That puts us in the category of those who have not heard. Well, no, we have heard. Greater than that which was, was revealed to the Gentiles, news has actually come to our ears. Not merely the proclamation of the heavens, but the very word of God has come to our ears. And greater than that which was even revealed to the Jews of old, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John tells us. We've seen the skies, we've heard news of the law, and we've seen his glory in the Messiah. So it is right to say that most today Christian believers are not Jews according to the flesh, though many are. And yet, we are not like the Gentiles who did not receive God's self-revelation of the word. We live in an age in which news is going out to the ends of the earth. What a glorious age to live in, a missionary age that to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles, the, the proclamation of the heavens and revelation of the law has been outshone by what? What could outshine the glory of the sun and the revelation of God's own word in the law? Ah, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ himself. This is the revelation to us. I need us to see this clearly so that we understand Romans 1 and what it's speaking about, or more clearly, about whom it's speaking. The second half of Romans 1 is giving us insight into the ungodliness and the unrighteousness. You'll notice I'm trying my best to use the words that are here, right? the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of mankind who reject the glory of God that's revealed in the heavens. That first of the three proclamations I've spoken about. The proclamation of the heavens, declaring the glory of God, the proclamation of the law, and the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, these 
Gentiles, in their ungodliness and unrighteousness, have not heard God's word from the prophets nor his law from the mountains. So I say this so we don't mistake, make a mistake of identity regarding the people of the second half of Romans 1 wrongly. There, are, there is great ungodliness and unrighteousness rampant all around us. I mean, just envision for a moment what you've seen, the ways of our local neighborhoods, the ways of our own county and in so much of the culture of our own nation. There is so much ungodliness and unrighteousness for which we ought to fear the wrath of God. And yet, we are not in the exact same position as the pagan Gentiles of Genesis 1. Do you see it? Oh, ungodliness, unrighteousness. No, I see that. It's everywhere. But we're not identical to these Romans chapter 1 people. We have more revelation and yet continue in ungodliness and unrighteousness. So much of our culture has more. Our culture, not just our churches, so much of our culture has more than the witness of the heavens. We have a tradition that has been shaped by Christian scriptures. Obedient to the scriptures? No. So often deeply, no. But deeply shaped by the Bible, and often explicitly aware of its teaching, so much so in the culture in which we live. And yet, there's a reason why I wanted to make a, a mini-series here in Romans 1. I didn't want to wait until spring to come back to it. I've been itching to get to August, all right, so we can, so we can share together in this time in Romans 1. We live in a moment, a moment in history in which the culture that you and I are enmeshed in. When you hear the word culture, don't think, right, out there somewhere, the culture that you and I are enmeshed in, to which we belong according to the flesh and in which we live our lives and have received so much of what we know and so much of the way that we think. We live in a culture that's increasingly, arrogantly, and belligerently ignorant of the word of the Lord. It's as though the West is intentionally regressing from being lifted out of Gentile ignorance and descending again into the very state in which we read today. Do you see? We knew something. We knew something like as a people group a few minutes ago. And it's like we're intentionally saying we don't want to know that anymore And it will take five minutes for the next generation to actually not know anymore. I think this is valuable definition of the phrase, a post-Christian West. It's a culture that is willfully ignorant of the great gift of God's revelation. Now, all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, or in this age in the West or other parts of the world, that have ready access to the scriptures. Jew, Gentile, or whatever this thing is, these Gentiles who have the scriptures, all of mankind are responsible to God. That's clear throughout Romans. There's none righteous, no, not 
one. It's the point that he's making. He's making it by holding out these Gentiles, and he's going to make it in chapter 2 and on by making the point about the Jews. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's why in spite of the fact that the word has become so accessible for 500 years, particularly not only known to a higher clergy, but known to the common man through Bible translation and, and the Bible publishing, we have access to the word in, in such a powerfully significant way. But even in a culture thick with biblical knowledge, sinners reject the Lord and his way. Do you understand that? It's not merely a knowledge of the truth. Sinners do not turn in faith to follow the way of Christ that is opened to him by grace. And so throughout Western history, there is, you know, political corruption. There's misconduct in the church. There's violence in the streets and violence in the homes, like the homes that know better. There's oppression of the poor. There is abuse of children. There's wars and there is slavery. All of these things are true right in the middle of a culture that has access to the word. This is the connection I want us to make. The scripture says this morning, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. This is true of the Gentile without the law. This is true of the Jew with the law, and this is true of a Western man whose very culture has been informed and shaped by the word and the gospel. Hear this. The world is better for the proclamation of the glory of God in the heavens. The world is better for that. And the world is better for the law revealed. And the world is better for the gospel that as it goes to the ends of the earth. But, and this is so important, hear this. In every place and at every time, Faith in God is what is needed in order to be rescued from real ignorance, which springs not from a lack of revelation, but in unrighteousness, the suppression of the truth. Do you understand that? What is our problem? That we don't know? Well, what were their problem? In our passage, that they did not know? or that they suppress the truth. The argument that Paul, the Apostle Paul is about to make throughout Romans is that, not, that only by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is righteousness truly revealed. That's what he said. That's why we read 16 and 17 this morning. And apart from the righteousness of God, man in his sin only has the wrath of God. These are the two realities. The, the Lord Jesus has come to work the power of God for salvation for all. Do you hear it? The same all. For all who believe. Only by this good news might we cease to suppress the truth and live by faith for faith, it says. And there's so many implications of this reality in the moment in which we live. There are many in the culture of the church in America that would desire to sort of go back to a better day, a better day real or imagined. The idea is we, if we can go back and recover something, we'll be better. 
I already said the world is better for the revelation of the stars and the sun and the moon and the law and the gospel. It's true, but so much of what is called the culture wars today is premised on the idea that we can go back to a time before we suppress the truth like we do today. And there is in, a, in only a manner that I would agree. Let me just agree with that pre- premise for a moment. Let me give you an example. The Gentiles of ancient Rome, they had the Gentiles, like, like the sort of Gentiles that we read about in our passage today, okay? They had little respect for human life. Most at risk in this culture with no respect for human life were infants and children who at times found themselves unwanted and discarded. Now, new believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles scattered about the Roman Empire, informed by God's word, saw the image of God in these discarded children and their need for the gospel. Now, these Jewish and Gentile believers, they weren't good people. They weren't by some accident of nature a higher grade of human than the average Roman. They simply had access to God's word, and they walked by faith in his way. And they began to take these children into their homes. They began to teach those children the word. They began to make disciples, even of discarded children. Countless children were rescued and became known throughout the whole of the empire, and the generous hospitality of Christian believers was known about the fatherless, toward the fatherless, And toward the the widow, in time, there was a growing influence of Christians in both Rome and later in Europe. So children were valued and, and protected because of a knowledge that came through these early believers and passed on from one generation to the next. So that if for the first time in history, in this region of the world, child sacrifice was almost unknown in Europe. And care for the elderly and the disabled was a distinctive of the Christian church. That that revelation had a positive impact in the culture that, let me suggest, ought to be uncontroversially called good. This is a good thing. This means that the spread of the impact of the Christian scriptures has at least this positive effect on the Western world. But if we flash forward to what is just the last 50 years and the rise of medical abortion on demand, how could any believer argue that the world was not a better place before the suppression of the truth that we knew for quite a long time, though we did not always walk in it by faith, but we knew for a long time that God hates child sacrifice. There's much about 50 years ago that I do not want to go back to. But as the culture war rages around us, I'm glad that Roe v. Wade was overturned. I I just think that that's uncontroversially real. There we go. Just one example. It's true that at least in one respect, the world was a better place before the suppression of the truth regarding the value of human life and the rise of the culture of death. And yet, here's my point. I will say again, only by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is righteousness of God truly revealed. Not by a knowledge that affects aspects of the culture and its laws, but only by faith in the gospel is 
righteousness revealed. Only by this good news, the gospel, might we suppress the truth no more and live by faith. This is the point. That the culture wars often get wrong in an effort to go back to a better day of, of perhaps a Christian nation or something like that. There, there, have been, there may have been a day, and I'm kind of making the argument that there was a day, in which biblical truth did more to shape our understanding of reality, sort of what's called our cultural imagination of our way of life in society. And, and perhaps the culture was better for having that revealed. But there has never been a moment in all of human history in which the true rescue that every human soul needs and the whole of the people together need is not this. We need and have always needed rescue from our suppression of the truth. This is a gift of grace from the Lord God alone, a gift into our lives like the gift of the air that we breathe so that we might honor him and give thanks to him. We do not need to go back to a previous better day. We need to go forward. Forward to what? Well, forward to the proclamation of the gospel of grace through faith. There has never been a time in history in which this has not been true. We need to go forward to receive from our God, to believe in our God, and walk in faith in his righteousness revealed. We need the gospel. The gospel as it's proclaimed in this most precious of letters. I know it's a long introduction. But I pray that God would work his word in us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as you reveal to us your word, as you, you bring this beautiful third revelation of who you are and the way that you are, of your steadfast love and mercy that we should have seen in the stars and the heavens and your provision of creation, that we ought to have seen in the beauty of your law we have now seen face to face in Christ. And yet, so often we do not believe. Lord, I pray that we would see your grace and respond with faith and that you would even work this scripture, this warning of your wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Lord, that you would use this word to grant to this people faith. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you, you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. We now are going to turn actually and walk through the passage together very quickly. We need to move. We are in verse 18 of Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, the wrath of God is coming. Right now, we, we know many trials and sufferings of many kinds, the momentary afflictions, we might call it, that have entered into the world on account of sin. There, there may be no particular sickness or trial that is necessarily associated with any one particular you know, problem or particular sin. Just because you develop a cough on Saturday 
or stub your toe in the morning, that doesn't necessarily mean that you sinned on Friday. Do you see what I'm saying? Like stubbing your toe hurts. It's an evidence of the wrath of God, but it's not evidence that you did a sin to deserve it, you know? But our sufferings do remind us that sin and its consequence, ultimately death, are an actual reality. And yet, there are more sufferings in this life that remain. The the wrath of God has been revealed as evidenced by sufferings, and there is a coming day of final judgment. Both of these things are true. The, The wrath of God has been revealed, and the wrath of God will be revealed. Verse 16 speaks of salvation, the gospel, for it is a salvation, or it is salvation for everyone who believes. But we must first know and believe that there is wrath, judgment for everyone who has sinned in order to understand salvation for everyone who believes. Paul wants us to know and believe the gospel. And in order to do that, He has to give us a clear view of the wrath of God, which was revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So in verse 18, he says the God's wrath is revealed. There is righteous judgment that we can already see. We can see the sun in the sky. If you go out in the field, you can see the stars in the heavens. And if you live in this life, you can see the wrath of God revealed. There is none righteous. And so all of mankind must face the reality of God's wrath all around us. Paul's situating us in the reality. I would argue that he's situating us, beginning in verse 18, in the reality of despair. (laughs) It's not a bad place to, to recognize that this is where we would be, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is revealed on account of the sin that all of us have participated in. This is a a problem that we face in the prayer of confession week after week. Yes, sin entered on account of our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we've shown ourselves to be justly condemned with them by our participation, not only in their flesh, but in their way. And so God is just to judge. Now, God's wrath is not merely the consequences of sin. We might think that God's wrath revealed in the world is something like this. We lose control of our anger, end up breaking something that's precious to us. Or if we take up a practice of lies and then we find out that not even our friends trust us anymore. And we say, see, that's the wrath of God revealed. Now, it's right to think of these things as a consequence of sin, and it's right to think of them as the result of God's right ordering of the universe. And God's right ordering of the universe is ordered to be against ungodliness and against unrighteousness. This is the way the world exists. It's the way that he made it. The justice of God is reflected in the way atoms move and relationships interact in the world. God's wrath itself, though, is his own hatred of evil. See, God's wrath isn't that you stubbed your toe in your anger. God's wrath isn't the difficulty in your relationships. God's wrath is that he hates sin. It's his own wrath. God's wrath is his own hatred of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's it's out of God's hatred of sin that he's ordered a world to punish the evildoer. 
It's because of God's wrath that he warns Adam with the words of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it. You shall surely die. He's warning him. My hatred of your disobedience has ordered the world in such a way that on that day you will surely die. God's disposition toward ungodliness and unrighteousness has been revealed. And here's a quote, a lengthy quote from John Murray. The wrath of God is dynamically, effectively operative in the world of men. And it is as proceeding from heaven, the throne of God, that it is thus active. God's wrath is not a passive thing. If you do this thing, then the natural laws mean that this thing will happen. No, God actually hates ungodliness. We must regard the penal inflictions, therefore, as due to the exercise of God's wrath upon the ungodly. There is a positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. Do you see why I titled this portion Despair? (laughs) This is not good news. This is bad news for sinners. It's good news for a rightly ordered creation. You see, the consequences of ungodly experience from wrongdoing is not merely the natural course of events, just the way physics happen to work out. They ought to be seen as the exercise of God's sovereign rule in the universe, the revelation of his wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. My point is this. The wrath of God is his ongoing hatred of that which is an affront to his holiness. What is revealed in the heavens? Do you remember Psalm 19? The glory of God is revealed. And his wrath is upon the affront to what he has clearly declared and revealed in the heavens. Let's consider ungodliness and unrighteousness. We've said those two words a dozen times already. There there has to be some distinction between these two, and they're being listed next to each other. There's a, a continuity, but there's also something we ought to see in both of them. I would argue that ungodliness is essentially a religious failure, and unrighteousness is essentially a moral failure. This is what one commentator calls the twin evils of idolatry and immorality. If you're taking notes, think on that. The twin evils of idolatry, a religious failure, and immorality, a moral failure. You might say that the first tablet of the law is dealing with ungodliness, and the second tablet deals with unrighteousness. Ungodliness is to fail to honor God as God, and unrighteousness is to fail fail to walk in the way of God that he has revealed for mankind to walk. Now, there is a link between these two things. Surely, it is a failure. It's true that a failure to honor the glory of God will lead to a rejection of his glorious way. A failure to honor God as God will mean, will say, not only are you not God, but your way is not good. I will be God, and I will rise up in what I call good. 
Ungodliness is a failure to orient one's life toward a heavenly sovereign. You hear that? A heavenly king, a heavenly ruler. And unrighteousness is to live as though we are our own sovereign. Do you see? There is a relationship between these two things. One, one of the great gifts of the law, the, the word of the Lord, is the first commandment, Deuteronomy 5, 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You get that ordered up right, and you have a heavenly sovereign. But you have not only a heavenly sovereign, but you also have a way to walk in light of that heavenly sovereign. And then you have the second commandment that's like it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, that's on earth beneath, and that's on the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love, as Jacob said when he saw the Lord on his return, steadfast love to those Thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Can you hear the ring of Romans 1 in that command? God's wrath is explicitly revealed against all who fail at this particular point. Idolatry. The world is not. Man. I'm going to say a sentence. I want you to hear and think about this sentence. I want you to think about why perhaps you might think this sentence isn't true, given where you live. The world is not a neutral, secular environment where if there is a God, he passively watches things play out. Why might you and I feel a little graded by that? This is where we live. This is a, a I would argue, a contentious point of the suppression of the truth in the world in which we live, that the world is a neutral place of atoms and photons and other particles of science. But the declaration of this passage is it is not a neutral environment where God watches passively, but he is active in the universe to declare with a voice that ought to be heard news of his glory but also to declare the active hatred that he has for all who would rise up against his glory. We do not live in a neutral world of atoms and photons. We live in an active world where our God is declaring, will we hear him? So for those who have not received the law, what does the Lord expect of them in this passage? How can they have failed at righteousness if they've not even heard the law of God? Well, we must consider what can be known about God. And the scripture does tell us what can be known. Verse 18, the second half. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that look like? What does it look like to suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them, verse 20, for though his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Not even clearly revealed. Clearly perceived. We know it. We know better. I would argue that there are at least two things about God that are suppressed. The first is 
We suppress who God is. We always have. The invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and his divine nature. We suppress what we know about who God is. We, we could look at the stars and the heavens, the sun and the moon and the sky, and we would say, what eternal power has made all of this? What glory gave the sun its light? What wisdom brings forth grain from the ground? What powers hold the stars in their place? I have in my notes something that we can't do right now, but I hope you will this week. Go to Job 38. And all the questions that are in Job 38 are the questions that are common to mankind, and God asks it of Job. Job 38. And the divine nature, we we should ask, he who spoke all of this into existence, surely he is not like all that he made. Surely this is all material, but surely he is divine or other. The heavens declare the glory of God, but God himself is not like them. He who made all things is greater than all things. He is divine. We ought know this. Why is this plain? Because God has shown it to them. That's what the passage says. Go back to Psalm 19 if you want to see how that works out. The very purpose of the heavens is to reveal the glory of God. But there's a second thing that we suppress in unrighteousness, and that is how is mankind to respond to this eternal power and divine nature? We'll look at this in more detail in just a moment, but for now it's important to say that it isn't just that we've pressed down what we know about the glory of God, it's that we suppressed our worship of that glory. The question is not whether or not we know that there is a God, neither is it a question of whether or not we know what God is like. The argument that Paul is making is that mankind is under the wrath of God and without excuse under the wrath of God. It's out of a willful suppression, not an accidental suppression, but a willful collective suppression of the truth. We are ignorant because we want to be. We do not worship God because we do not want to. Now, they became fools. The passage says, look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What did they do? What is the second suppression? Well, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Uh, That's been moving to me since the very first time I ever read it. It's not the words that I expected to be there. I thought they, they did not do what he told them to, you know? That's not what it says. They didn't honor him as God. And they didn't say, you know, thank you. I exist. And I would not were it not for the self-giving generosity of creation. 
what follows is most instructive because they failed at these two points, to honor God and to give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Those are directly connected, and I would argue always connected. Scripture is clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And to reject the Lord, to treat him as something to be dishonored, as nothing, is this not the very initiation of folly? This moment, this reality, this most basic thing is the dividing line between the wise and the fool. To honor God as God and to give thanks to him is the division. Not some endemic betterness of who you are. Not some innate intelligence. But do you honor him as God and give thanks to him? There are only two options, to love the Lord or to love unrighteousness. I would encourage you to write in the margins here, 2 Thessalonians 2.12. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 goes like this. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but, rather, had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why didn't they believe? Well, because they followed the science, and they did a logical argument and found. No! They liked unrighteousness, took pleasure in it. We don't have a behavior problem. You and I have a pleasure problem. The issue is not that we haven't figured out how to behave. It's that we've not figured out who to love. As one pastor says, this is not a problem of a mental deficiency, but of a moral and a religious deficiency. The problem is not in what we do not know, but in what we do not love. So what does life look like for those who reject God as God? That's what verses 22 and 23 unpack for us. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What? Folly and ignorance. These glorious creatures, mankind, These creatures made in the image of God to behold the glory of God in the heavens. The the audience for all of creation's splendor give bowing down to a bird. And here they are prostrating themselves to the worship of a snake. That's what it means by futility. I'll say it again. Submission to God, our maker, is the gateway to wisdom. To give thanks to him is the first of wisdom's duties. When we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, we don't become something more. We don't transcend what we used to know and move on in the progression of humanity's enlightenment. We become fools over and over again, in every generation. I don't care which era you lived in. The suppression of the truth makes us less than what we are. We were made in the image of God to honor and to enjoy him, giving thanks to him. 
We were made in the image of God, but if we suppress the truth about God, we suppress the truth about the image in whom you were made. The suppression of the truth about God is also inevitably the suppression of the truth about humanity. But we don't like it. So we live in such a haughty, arrogant, foolish moment in the history of the West. Everyone is so quick to declare, follow the science, follow the science, and yet we're like the fools of Romans 1 who pay no heed to the proclamation of the heavens. We like textbooks rather than glory. We don't talk about it much from the pulpit, and I do not talk about this often very intentionally because I don't want to distract from the preaching of the gospel, which is what I hope I am preaching today. But I actually do spend a great deal of time and energy paying attention to the trends that are in the culture and in the news and what I perceive to be an accelerating suppression of the truth that the history of Western culture has handed down to us. Like it came all the way down to this generation. And we, and perhaps one or two generations that came before us, is not handing it down again. I see a willful pressing down, suppression, pressing down an arrogant loss of a great inheritance handed down. An inheritance deeply shaped by the presence of biblical revelation in which people were evil. (laughs) Right in the midst of the handing of that down. It's not a making an argument for going back to some glorious day. No, the people were evil the whole time they had this inheritance, but at least they had the truth to believe. Here is this. For Romans makes this clear to us. Our hope is neither in the recovering of Western culture nor in a return to some prior golden age. In every age and in every culture, God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, against all mankind who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul has already spoken the singular hope, and that's why we read it, even though we haven't preached on it this morning. All that follows in Romans is an unpacking of the truth of verses 16 and 17. Look at it one more time. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is but one reality that will never put us to shame. The gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And how do we take hold of this one sure hope? Again, it's not a return to some golden age or an adoption of a government law or way of being as good as that would be for us to live like that. It will not save our souls. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone that the hope is restored. The greatest thing that our culture and all of its decline is this, the greatest need that we have It needs a people. I'm giving you a strategy for cultural engagement right here. Are you ready? What the world needs is a people who know the truth of the glory of God in the heavens, who know the way of God in his word and the grace of God in his gospel. That's what that early church knew when they brought in those discarded children. 
They need to submit themselves by faith to a life that honors God with our worship and gives thanks to God and enjoyment of him with our lives. The world has seen enough of self-righteous religious types that that go in to fix the culture with all of our little cherry-picked, arbitrary set of laws that we think we can obey, and so we think everybody should obey that little cherry-picked bit of God's revelation. And the world's had enough of that. There's something they haven't seen. What the world hasn't seen is a tiny little church, tiny little church right here in the middle of Brevard County whose very lives are shaped by their confession that there is one God. Who don't suppress the truth, but by faith walk in it. Not our comfort, not our affluence, not our families or our careers. A people in a tiny little church with a singular hope, which is the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer a people with a particular joy, to live lives tasting and seeing, not that we're good, but that the Lord is actually good in his steadfast love and mercy. Heavenly Father, it requires intervening miracle if this would be so of this tiny little church in the middle of a really tall county in Florida. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your grace, you would continue. Do not withhold your truth. Make your revelation known to us. And may your spirit incline our hearts to wisdom. Grant us the gift of faith to receive that what we would see revealed is your righteousness upon us by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the work of his gospel on the cross in forgiveness, in resurrection, in securing life. May we live in light of the gospel. Lord, we do pray for us. We need prayer but we also pray for the place that we live. Lord, would your wrath tarry a moment longer? May it do its tutoring work. But Lord, let us proclaim that others might believe before your wrath is finally revealed. Save the lost, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Lord, we do honor you in this moment, at least in this second by grace. We honor you as God. And we give thanks to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.